Senator Perry, he knew that he was in trouble because of the fact that he had a parent born overseas. This doesn't require lawyers, it requires integrity and decency and leadership. And the Prime Minister's not prepared to demonstrate that. And I have to say, neither is the opposition leader. You know, he says he's confident. Well, back it up, support the Greens' call for an audit. Is it on? Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it, it is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast, Is It On? We are recording this on the morning of Friday the 3rd of November. My name is Alice Workman, I am in Canberra and joining me from Sydney is Lane Sainty. Hello Lane. (laughs) Hey Alice, how are you going? Lane, I'm feeling a bit down this week because I'm really Mm -hmm. getting the vibe that uh, everyone in this country barring the Indigenous people of whose country it is. Um, he's a dual citizen except for me and I feel a bit left out. Um, <laughs> I checked with my mother and my, yeah. both my parents and both my, gra- both my grandparents were born in Australia, but I have mm-hmm. one great-grandfather who was born in Jamaica and another who was born in either Ireland or England. But that's about it. What about you? Are you, are you a jewel? I'm not a jewel, or at least I don't think I am. But, you know, we, we all know how that's turned out. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not. I mean, both my parents were born in Australia and or their parents were born in Australia. And I, I, I actually don't know beyond that, um, which is pretty bad. I should ask some more questions about my family history. As we've learned this week, no one seems to know where they come from. We should just get that SBS show <laughs> on board and just sign everyone up. Or yes, as, for the whole country. Or as I joked, we'll just order 226 uh, of those DNA tests from Ancestry.com and just figure this shit out once yep. and for all. All right, what is on the show yep. this week? This week, Alice, I sat down with two of our colleagues, Gina Rushton and Paul Farrell, to talk about their shocking investigation into the conditions and medical care for asylum seekers and refugees detained in Australia's offshore detention centre on Nauru. So that's coming up later. And off the back of my chat last week with former PM Kevin Rudd, I had a chat this week to comedian Sean McAuliffe about the second season of his TV show called, conveniently, The XPM. Ooh, is it about Kevin Rudd? Well, maybe it's about John Howard. <gasps> or maybe Julia Gillard. Well, we will find out. Look, we've got heaps to get <laughs> we through. We will. So let's kick it off with this mm-hmm. week's Fast Five. And Fast Five number one is, Here comes another one. That's the theme from the TV show, The Block. <laughs> <laughs> Which no one will be surprised to hear I have not seen. <laughs> Classic Lane. Now, the Citizenship yep. 7 is now the hateful 8 or the really who knows how many. We thought it was all over after the High Court booted five politicians from Parliament last week, but no. Look, it's very disappointing. Um, you know, Senator Parry has done a, a great job as President uh, of the Upper House and of the Senate. Uh, you know, it's most unfortunate and I'm very sad to hear the news this afternoon. In a week where the government really should be focusing on the New England by-election, they've kicked another own goal and dragged this whole shenanigans into another week. President of the Senate, oh, Tasmanian man. Liberal Senator Stephen Parry, has become the sixth 
politician to leave Parliament over dual citizenship. Parry is the first Liberal politician to be drawn into the saga. So this all started on Tuesday, which incidentally was Stephen Parry's 57th birthday. Happy birthday, Stephen. Uh, He informed colleagues that he was seeking (laughs) advice from the UK Home Office as to whether he was in fact a British citizen by descent from his father. And by Wednesday, he's heard back that yes, he is a Brit. He may have been born in Tasmania, but his dad was a 10-pound pom, one of the hundreds of thousands of Brits who made a new life in Australia after World War II. Now, the interesting thing about Parry is, in his job as Senate president, he signed the letter referring the other six senators to the High Court and yet said nothing about his own citizenship concerns. But we now know he told Communications Minister Mitch Feifeld and other people in the government that he had suspicions, and they told him to shut up. They told him to do nothing, because their advice from the Solicitor General was that everyone would be all good, so there was no need to cause any more distractions. So he purposely waited until after the High Court ruled to reveal his dual citizenship and even go to the go to the Home Office and ask the question. So the timing around this whole thing is very questionable for him to make mm. the referrals, especially from former Deputy Nats Leader Fiona Nash, who was also a British dual by descent, and to not check himself when he obviously knew something was up, and then to be told to stay mum about it, unlike Matt Canavan, who blamed his mum. But look, the PM said he didn't find out about it until the media reported it on Tuesday. Attorney General George Brandis said that Parry called him on Monday. But, I mean, can we really believe them? Is this another example of don't ask, don't tell? After last week's questions over who knew what over the cash raids, it's kind of hard, it's getting really hard to believe them. In his email to colleagues this week, Parry said that the High Court's ruling was so definitive and straight down the line that if the Home Office came back and said he was a jewel, he wouldn't even bother to wait for the High Court Referral. So this week he quit his 340k a year job as president of the Senate and stood down Whoa. as a Tasmanian senator. Now there will be a recount, and former Liberal Minister Richard Colbeck will likely replace him, which is already causing problems in the Liberal Party because Erica Betts, who's the head of the Tasmanian Liberals, he put Colbeck at the bottom of the ticket at the last election in the unwinnable spot because Colbeck is a moderate and Betts is a conservative. But one of the more interesting questions to come out of this is who will become mm-hmm. the next Senate president? Now, Lane. It's a cushy job, big salary, big office, amazing catering budget, private courtyard. Now, the Nationals are lobbying for the job, despite no National ever holding the position, because it's usually filled by a Liberal, (laughs) uh, because they want to restore the coalition balance, which has been left askew by Deputy Nationals leader Fiona Nash being replaced by a Liberal, and also they're going to lose a National out of Cabinet. Um, we'll talk about Fiona Nash more in a second. But uh, so Wacker Williams, who's a John Williams, he's a senator from New South Wales, has put his hand up. Uh, but there have also been Ian McDonald, who's a controversial Liberal senator we've talked about in the past, has put his hand up. Greens senator from Tasmania, Peter Wish Wilson's put his hand up. It's just, uh, I mean, Pauline Hanson is apparently interested in the job too, but it's just like more ongoing chaos for the government that they just don't need at the time. And now there are calls for what we should do next. If this is an ongoing problem, if these new, if there are people waiting in the wings with potential dual citizenships that that are too afraid to come out or, or won't reveal it, do we need a full audit of all of the 226 federal politicians? That's what some people, including liberals, have been calling for. Others think that we need to change the wording of Section 44 to better reflect the nation's multiculturalism because, you know, 51% of the country were either born overseas or have a parent overseas. But that's kind of bullshit to me because we've always been a country of immigrants. Even when parliament was created, they were all British. 
maybe, you know, if there mm. were more Indigenous politicians, we wouldn't have this problem. I think more Indigenous politicians just generally outside of Section 44 is, is a very good idea. Mm. Now, the major yeah. parties aren't supporting an audit because it would be basically mutually assured destruction as no one knows how many dual citizens there are in Parliament. It could result in a number of by-elections, which means that the government could fall and lead to a snap election. And the issue is it's all about self-reporting. So I can't go to another country and ask about a politician because they won't reveal someone else's citizenship's status. So people need to check themselves. So it's all about self-reporting. But I'm really annoyed about this because why are the Labor Party stalling on this? If their vetting process is as good as they say it is, they literally have the receipts. They should have the documents Mm -hmm. of all of their politicians (laughs) in head office and they should just come back to Parliament in the next sitting week and go one by one and table all of them. Because there are question marks over some Labor politicians who are just refusing to produce the documents that they say prove that they renounced before they ran. If they have the documents, they should just self-declare, Lane, self-declare. Yeah, Labor's, Labor's reticence on this is pretty unconvincing, mm. I find. Absolutely. I mean, like, I get why the government don't want to do it. <laughs> their, their reticence makes sense in a craven kind of way. Mm. But Labor's does not to me, unless, as you say, they actually do not have all the receipts. Exactly. So... What is Stephen Parry going to do now? Well, fun fact, Lane, he might go back to mm-hmm. his family undertaker business because before politics, right. he was a cop, he was a detective, but then he left the police force to become a funeral director and him and his wife run three funeral parlours around Tasmania. Well, that sounds more fun than the Senate. <laughs> so what's number two? Number two, Alice, is let's go back and have a look at what's happened with the Citizenship 7 before they became the Citizenship 8. So as we all know by now, the High Court ruled on Friday that five would go and two could stay. Okay, let's look first at the five politicians who were booted from Parliament. One, obviously, Barnaby Joyce. He's out of Parliament. He's now campaigning for the by-election in his seat of New England. Now, that campaign's already started, but we still aren't sure of who's running against Barnaby. Tony Windsor isn't. One Nation isn't fielding anyone. There's Labor, Greens, a few independents who might run. Shooters and Fishers might run somebody. But Barnaby does look like he has the numbers at this stage. The earliest Barnaby Joyce or, you know, whoever wins New England, let's not be too presumptuous about this, can be back in Parliament will be next year. The Australian Electoral Commission will conduct special recounts to replace four senators on Monday. So let's take a look at Deputy Nationals leader or the former Deputy Nationals leader and Senator Fiona Nash. She'll likely be replaced by next on the New South Wales coalition ticket, who is Liberal Holly Hughes, which will mean there'll be one less national in the Senate and one less woman in Cabinet. And there aren't that many there to begin with. So that's quite a loss. This is the second woman that they've lost from Cabinet and they won't replace. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I don't know what to say. (laughs) Yes, audible sigh. The third person who was booted was One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts. He'll be replaced by Fraser Anning, who was next on the Queensland One Nation ticket. But he's already started campaigning for a seat in the Queensland election in November. He's running for Ipswich, which is currently held by Labor. Will he win? Look, the jury's out. It's it's a big swing seat and, you know, Roberts has gained quite the profile 
in the time he spent in the federal parliament. So the fourth person who was booted, Green Senator Scott Ludlam, he'll be replaced by 23-year-old student Jordan Steele-John, who was next on the WA Greens ticket. And the fifth was Green Senator Larissa Waters, who will be replaced by the former leader of the Democrats, Andrew Bartlett, who was second on the Queensland Greens ticket. But Waters says she's thinking about running for the Senate again at the next election. So I wouldn't be surprised to to see her back in the Senate at some stage. And the two politicians the High Court said could stay, well, Queensland National Senator Matt Canavan has already been sworn back in as a minister. That happened on the on the day the High Court came down with its decision. But even though the High Court said he was safe, as we all know, crossbench former senator, I keep having to say former, Nick Xenophon has resigned from the federal Senate to run in South Australia. His last day in Canberra was last Friday, and he's an- announced that the Nick Xenophon team will now be renamed SA Best, so the the same as the, the name of the state party. It'll also be called that federally. And that the party has picked his longtime staffer, Rex Patrick, to replace him in the Senate. Now, Rex Patrick, incidentally, was last year identified as the source of a media tip-off about a major security breach at DCNS, which is the French firm building Australia's new fleet of submarines. But Alice, it's not that simple. Another Xenophon team party member, Tim Storer, wants the Senate seat and has challenged Rex Patrick for it, sparking an internal fight. So now the South Australian Parliament has to decide. But Either way, we've got a whole new colourful cast of characters joining us in the Senate very soon. Alice, what's number three? Number three is about Manus Island. Now, the Australian government closed down the Manus Island Detention Centre. They run at 5pm on Tuesday. They cut off the power, the water and food supplies and literally just started like dismantling the, the whole facility. But more than 600 asylum seekers inside the facility have refused to leave. Now, at the time of recording, they've spent the last three nights inside the detention centre sustaining themselves on stockpiles of food and water. And uh, we've been sent some photos of, of what the living conditions like. And there, I mean, if you thought it was bad before, it's it's it's, it's really upsetting to look at. And uh, we, they reached a point where on Thursday they'd run out of water, but then it rained. So then they were catching uh, water in garbage bins to use for, sh- for drinking. And they were digging holes in the ground to, to find water. And the whole thing is just, you know, really, really upsetting. Now, the Australian and PNG governments have been urging the asylum seekers to move into this other accommodation on the island, but some of the men say they're concerned for their safety if they leave the compound after locals looted and there have been um, there have been some riots in the past and, and, and asylum seekers have been hurt by locals. Now, it's believed over the last few days that one man did self-harm and that others are having extreme medical and mental health issues. Um, Gina and Paul are going to talk a little bit later about generally what things are like there in normal circumstances, but obviously this is kind of extenuated circumstances. Now, an injunction application was before PNG Supreme Court on Wednesday, um, uh, and that would force PNG to reopen the facility and provide food and water electricity to the men, but there have been no official talks yet, so we've got no resolution there. And there's a bit of conjecture about what is actually happening. Green Senator Nick McKim, who is on Manus Island, says 20% of the men on the island have been on medication and are clinically depressed and they're suffering from post-traumatic stress and now don't have access to medication. And the United Nations High Commissioner is also on Manus and said that one of the two alternative accommodation field facilities isn't actually even ready yet for anyone to move into. But 
You know, Immigration Minister Peter Dutton hasn't budged from the government's line. He says the government has a clear and consistent policy since coming to office that anyone attempting to enter Australia illegally by boat would never settle in Australia. He said the detainees had been informed about the alternate safe and secure accommodation available and in a statement without any irony, he said, detainees have long claimed that the Manus Detention Centre was a hellhole, but the moment it was to be closed, they demanded it to be kept open. Now... Russell Crowe has weighed into this. He tweeted the other day, Mm. Manus, a national shame. Lives held in limbo. Lives lived in fear and despair. It's a fucking disgrace. Someone replied to him, the overhyped Lester's outcry is the only disgraceful part, Russ. Maybe you could put them up somewhere if you're so ashamed. And then he replied, I've thought about this. I believe I could house and find jobs for six. I'm sure there'd be other Australians who would do the same. Now, in a minute, I'll talk more about uh, New Zealand who have weighed into this as well but you know it's an ongoing Mm -hmm. situation so uh, keep your eyes peeled about what what's happening as this as this unfolds on a daily basis. Lane what's number four? Number four Alice is the Queensland election. Mm -hmm. So not only do we have a by-election in New England on the 2nd of December and don't forget Northcote on the 18th of November what's up Melbourne another workman prediction came true Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk called the Queensland election for November 25th because it's not like we're all already busy or anything That's with right, Lane. electoral events. Another workman prediction year. to come true. <laughs> ding, ding. You hold on to that, Alice. You hold on to that. People doubted me, Lane. They were like, she said she won't call it for months. It won't be till next year. And I said, no, no, yeah. no, 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 my friends. Forget all this federal stuff. She's going to call it now. And she has. <laughs> so... We've got Labor's Anastasia Palaszczuk going up against Liberal National Tim Nichols. There's only one house in the Queensland Parliament, and this election it will be expanded to 93 seats. You need 47 of them to form a majority government. So big issues. We've got Adani, the Great Barrier Reef, coal and gas mining, clean energy, renewable energy target for Queensland, all huge issues up there. It plays into um, climate change. It plays into jobs. Uh, you, you know, those. that's one of the big things to watch this election. We've also got uh, the Safe Schools Coalition is kind of some of the interest groups up there are agitating for that to become a big issue. There's jobs and growth. So, yeah, like I like I mentioned before with Adani, creating jobs is just, you know, always going to be such a huge issue and that is definitely one to watch in Queensland. Infrastructure funding is another big issue. Now, interestingly, this is the first time Queenslanders are required to number all the boxes on their ballot papers. So they used to just pick one person to vote for as, as their local member, but now there's preferencing. And that means that smaller parties like One Nation and Catter's Australian Party will most likely hold the balance of power and could actually end up deciding who forms government. So both Labor and the LNP have said there is no way they would share power with Pauline Hanson's One Nation. But both are sitting on a primary vote of 30%, which is pretty low and may not be enough to form government. So Alice, Mm. number five, it's pretty exciting. Do you want to fill us in? Number five is New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is coming to Australia. It's her first ever trip as PM and she's decided to come to, you know, New Zealand's closest ally, or are we, uh, Australia. She's literally flying in (laughs) on Sunday morning, going to Kirribilli House in Sydney at 9.35am, talking to the PM, going to the airport at midday and flying back to Wellington. So... 
You know, she loves Australia so oh much God. she's only spending a few hours here. <laughs> um, now, interestingly, I mean, how long is the flight? Three hours. Is she here uh, for longer like, than the flight? It's like three and a half hours. Uh, I think she's here yeah. for the length of a flight, um, which, is, which is good. <laughs> okay. Interestingly, this week, Jacinda Arden was named number 13 on Forbes' most powerful uh, female leaders list. Uh, Julie Bishop was not in the top 20. But um, the, the list itself is really is really quite interesting to see what Jacinda Arden was placed um, ahead mm-hmm. ahead of Hillary Clinton. So good on you, Jacinda. Oh, now, wow. um, so Jacinda's going to sit down with Malcolm Turnbull. They're expected to talk about trade, defence ties ahead of the upcoming APEC in Vietnam, and there's an East Asia summit in the Philippines as well. But also, she's going to ra- she's going to talk about the refugees on Manus Island because. New Zealand have had a long-standing offer since 2013 when John Key was PM to take 150 refugees from Manus or Nauru and resettle them in New Zealand. Now, no Australian Prime Minister has ever taken them up on this offer for a number of reasons. One, they say that it could encourage um, people smugglers to uh, have a backdoor entry into Australia because uh, the asylum seekers that get resettled in New Zealand will become New Zealand citizens and that means that within five years they could they could travel to Australia as a New Zealand citizen. Anyway, so they're definitely going to talk about that. But you know what they might also talk about, Lane? I don't know, mm. about how Julie Bishop said she would find it hard to trust a Labor government after she accused Arden of interfering in Australia's former Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce's citizenship. Um Unfortunately, Julie Bishop won't be in attendance uh, after her busy week as acting PM, deflecting away from from any questions about leadership or speculation of, of, of the government's majority. She's um, too busy in Perth to attend. And obviously, Barnaby Joyce will be campaigning in Tamworth. So neither of them will be there. But um, yeah, so I'm excited for the drama. Uh, you know, Malcolm Turnbull said this week, as Australia you always and are, New Zealand Alice. are not just mates. We are family. We are family. Okay, mate. Sure. We are family. <laughs> and with that, it's now right. time for Lane's favourite segment. <laughs> the controversial same-sex marriage postal vote. This plebiscite on same-sex marriage. Postal vote. Postal plebiscite. The postal plebiscite or survey or whatever it is on same-sex marriage. It has been a quiet week on the postal survey front, Alice, which frankly has been quite nice, mm. if you ask me. Uh, we got yet another ABS update on Tuesday. The survey return rate is now at 77%, which I've got to say, that is damn high. Um, over three quarters of voting Australians getting around the survey. As we've said in previous weeks, it surpasses many other votes around the world. I think Australians just love to vote. They love um, democracy. Not that this is democracy. Yeah. <laughs> They love democracy. You know what? You know, as, as we all know, Malcolm Turnbull loves to take the turnout as an endorsement of his policy. <laughs> well, didn't Tony Abbott what, what say this say? week if there was a 40% mm. no vote, it would be an endorsement of the no campaign, that it would be a moral victory? Um, yeah. Someone tweeted me and said, well, since Australians obviously love postal surveys so much, maybe we could have a postal survey non-plebiscite on what to do over uh, the citizenship changes. Section 44, should it stay or should it go? <laughs> Yeah, look, maybe. I I don't care what we vote on Another anymore. Another couple of million um, for Australia Post. Yeah. The the thing that Abbott said is is funny because I you know, a guy I was talking to on Twitter a while ago, um, you know, made the point that you can't you can't win or lose a survey. <laughs> like it's a survey. <laughs> So I really like this idea that anyone can just read their own wins and losses into the survey, um, which Abbott is is obviously going to do. Um, but, Alice, I want to take us back 
to earlier this week, which kicked off with a monologue from John Oliver, who's uh, the host of Last Week Tonight, an, an American news show about the postal survey. He absolutely roasted the survey and it was, you know, a pretty good reminder of how farcical this process appears from the outside. So here he is. One activist seemed unusually obsessed with terminology. Ladies and gentlemen, if I may still use that term in these gender fluid times, I speak for marriage. Speaking against same-sex marriage is Sophie York from lobby group Marriage Alliance, which says unions of same-sex couples shouldn't even be called marriage. I think that that idea of having a different word has been floated and I'm sure it still will be and, and, and someone else put forward the word garage as, as a possibility. Garage? That is a stupid word. Except in the very rare case of a wedding between two men named Gary, in which case, obviously, they should be getting garried. There was also a story going around this week in which a Perth teenager rejected an award that was sponsored by her local MP, Ian Goodenough. So Grace Gouldstone from Duncraig Senior High School was awarded the Ian Goodenough Award for positive attitude and contribution to the school. But she returned the award and wrote in a letter to her principal that she doesn't think Ian Goodenough reflects the values of the school because he voted no in the postal survey. She wrote in a letter to her principal, there are students at our school my friends who have a very wonderful and positive future ahead of them in same-sex relationships. I will not accept a community award sponsored by a person who will not allow them to marry in the future. It was the West Australian who reported this and they also got a response from Ian Goodenough who said basically that he supports Grace's right to decline the award. He said, I'm okay with that if she feels strongly the other way. Not everybody will agree with me. So that was one of the stories going around this week, Alice. You could say, Elaine, that the award was not good enough. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm really... Uh, I can hear you groaning, Just groaned very audibly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's move right on. Um, So, Alice, as we know, we've had a lot of great comparisons and and references to same-sex relationships as friendships throughout the Postal Survey campaign. We had Kevin Andrews and his cycling mates comment, which John Oliver also thought thought fit to have a go at. Um, Then we had Archbishop... Glenn Davies on on Q&A, who used the word friendships in relation to same-sex relationships. And I'm very pleased to announce, Alice, that our very own former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, also joined the friendship bandwagon this week in a speech he gave to the Alliance Defending Freedom in New York. He said, Love might be love, as the same-sex marriage campaign asserts, but marriage isn't the only kind of love, as everyone who's ever had a true friend or a real life should know. (laughs) A true friend. Strong words from a man who is Kevin Andrews' cycling friend there. (laughs) Yes, that is a great point, Alice. Um, In the same speech, Abbott said that the No campaign had raised $6 million throughout the campaign through donations and and things. And he also spoke about how the Postal Survey has energised a new conservative political force in Australia. And this is, you know, going back to his idea that if there is a 40% vote for no, it's it's a moral victory. He's talking about this new energised political force. And he also suggested in his speech, and this is very interesting, that he thought it would most benefit Corey Bernardi's Australian Conservatives. And this is this is one to keep an eye on, I think, the kind of lingering ties that, that may come out of the marriage campaign and the Bernardi's Australian Conservatives Party. Um, anyway, dear listeners, next time you hear from us, the survey will have officially closed. 
So this week was the last week of scrabbling around for votes. The Yes campaign stopped its emails, calls and door knocking. They finished that up last week, though it is still reminding people to put ballots in the mail or take them to drop-off locations via social media. Whereas the No campaign told me earlier this week that, you know, it's keeping up its emails, it's keeping up its door knocking and calls. It told me it will be campaigning until 6pm on November 7th. And then it's a matter of waiting for the results, which we will know at 10 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. So that's 7 a.m. for the people over in Western Australia. It will be announced in Belconnet, which is a suburb of Canberra. And who knows what it will be. Also, it will be announced by uh, Australia's top two statisticians, uh, which is just a Mm -hmm. direct dig, I think, at all statisticians around the country, given that this is not a a weighted survey. (laughs) (laughs) Like, a, like yeah, it's a look, real dig at those public servants making them announce this as if it's some kind of like mathematically accurate survey. <laughs> <laughs> the politicians are in refusing Belconnen. to do it in Belcon. What a time to be alive! Now people have people people keep asking me, um, and I don't know if you want me to include this, but have you posted your survey result? Have you posted your survey? Uh, yeah, I have. I have posted my survey. I posted it recently. There we go. She's posted it, guys. She's posted it. <laughs> yeah. It's now officially so Alice- over. This whole thing is over. <laughs> <laughs> so this week, our colleagues Paul Farrell and Gina Rushton published a series of stories as part of a shocking investigation into the medical care for the asylum seekers and refugees detained in Australia's offshore detention centre on Nauru. Whistleblower Nick Martin, who worked as a senior medical officer on Nauru from November 2016 to August 2017, has made some serious allegations about the failures of the Australian government to get these people the medical care they need. Here is some of what he told BuzzFeed. I was in the Royal Navy for 16 years. I joined at medical school and did a cadetship with them and I was lucky enough to serve in submarines and on ships and also on land as well. Served in Afghanistan, I did uh, tours in the Persian Gulf, I went to Kosovo and uh, as well as being on ships going around the Baltic so I had a fairly varied career. A lot of the conditions in the camps were very familiar to me because they're run on essentially military lines with a, a mess hall or a dining hall and lots of people in various uniforms hanging around and lots of, uh, lots of rules and regulations that you had to abide by. It's basically told don't contact the press don't talk out of turn, don't be an advocate, just look after the patients and don't complain too much. Being regarded as an advocate for a patient was seen as being on the wrong side of the, uh, of the equation, which was very difficult because on one hand you're supposed to look after your patients and you're supposed to be an advocate for your patients as a doctor, that's a fundamental tenet of what we do. I got increasingly disillusioned with how The structures that have been set up in place by the Australian government meant that we could not get the best outcomes for our patients. And so I found as I kept working there, a lot of decisions were being made that went against what I felt was best medical practice, and I found that increasingly difficult to tolerate. If what happened with these medical delays occurred when you were in the armed forces, what do you think would have happened? I would have lost my job, I'd expect to get sued, I'd expect to be, um, there'd be absolute uproar. It just wouldn't happen. You know, no one would willingly treat someone like that. These medical delays that are put in place are absolutely criminal. And I, I, I hope at some point that there is a, a big inquiry and, and these guys do get to have a say because they've been put, put at 
harm and knowingly, willfully, are, being, are coming to medical harm because of the policies put in place by the Australians. There are people that are in pain every day. They have huge psychiatric issues and psychological troubles. And this is solely because of this hideous policy of keeping people in offshore detention for unbelievable lengths of time. Paul Farrell and Gina Rushton, welcome to the podcast. Hi. It's great to be here, Lane. <laughs> One of the taglines on, on the investigation published this week was worse than a war zone. Mm. So Nick there was comparing his experiences on Nauru with his experiences working in actual war zones. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so he... Um he served in Afghanistan, um, in submarines in the Persian Gulf um, and in Kosovo even. Um, and he, yeah, has basically come forward and said that um, some of the stuff he saw in Nauru was worse than what he saw um, in Afghanistan. And Paul, what, what can you lend any insight into, I suppose, why he felt so compelled to, to come forward and share his experiences there at this time? Mm. So I, I think... Nick's greatest frustrations were that he had tried time and time again to flag these issues up, to escalate them to his superiors, to escalate them to the Australian government, but that there just wasn't action being taken. <clears throat> and in his view, that was quite potentially damaging patients' health and could even have jeopardised their lives. So he made the decision to speak out publicly because of that frustration and that decision that really there was no other way that he could get the word out about what was happening. Right. And Gina, can I ask you to run me through some of the medical conditions, the medical problems that Nick was witnessing and, and finding that he was unable to, to get these people treatment for? Yeah, so um, a pretty common one that he was coming up against was kidney stones. So people that had um, like obstructing kidney stones um, that he just couldn't get um, evacuated off the island for um, for medical treatment. Um, and anyone who's had a kidney stone will know it's like an incredibly painful experience. And right. there were just delays after delays on those. Um, there were there's a w woman with breast lumps who needed a biopsy. There was um, a man with neurological damage who was having blackouts. Um, and then people with um, untreated diabetes, so brittle diabetes, um, who are at risk of going blind. Okay. And as part of the investigation, you got your hands on emails by doctors who were working in the detention centre. What did these emails show about the decision-making processes going on about these very ill asylum seekers and refugees? So the emails showed that there was considerable frustration that was not only felt by Nick Martin, but by other medical practitioners on the island. And they showed that a considerable part of that frustration was the handling of serious and critical cases by the Australian Immigration Department. Um, so they really helped build a picture of a system that is not functioning as it should be and is really not working in a way that gives the best clinical outcomes for asylum seekers and refugees. Was medical treatment purposely delayed? Medical treatment wasn't purposefully delayed, but it was delayed by the design of a system that required such onerous checks and such a fraught process that the end result was that treatment recommendations made by Nick Martin and by other doctors 
were simply not being actioned within their recommended timeframes. And as Nick Martin says, that's an incredibly dangerous situation where you have non-medical officers effectively playing this key role in medical decisions. And what is kind of the end point of some of these medical conditions that, that people had if they aren't getting the treatment that they need? Um, well, severe delays, um, I guess. Um, and then, you know, situations that just uh, escalated into um, a critical condition that they shouldn't have. So, for example, there was a man with dengue fever who, um, you, you know, they'd been trying to get off the island for days and was at a point where he might have possible sepsis. Um, and they were just coming, this kind of bureaucratic like tug of war where they were going back and forth um, and couldn't get him off until, as Nick says, he was at death's door. And was that the example in which uh, they were advised that people were in a meeting and so couldn't get back to them? Yeah, so in the um, some of the exchanges between, I guess, ABF and IHMS, um, it kind of became apparent that... Um, that, that uh, one of the medical officers was told that the delegates um, or bureaucrats were in a meeting. Um, so he kind of just asked them to interrupt the meeting. <laughs> right. Okay, so in, in generally conversations about Australia's offshore detention system, there is a lot of passing the buck, a lot of pointing fingers. When it, you know, looking at this specific issue, the Australian government says that Nauru is responsible for this medical care, but then Nauru often points the finger back to Australia. Who actually does have the duty of care here? The asylum seekers that are held in the Nauru Detention Centre, Australia clearly owes them a duty of care. They owe that duty as a matter of law, and the certainly the High Court has ruled to that effect. And we can see from the recent class action settlement on Manus Island that clearly the government has to answer for the care and the manner in which um, facilities are provided to refugees and asylum seekers on both Nauru and Manus Island. There are certainly some other questions that arise for refugees particularly um, who are also subject to a sort of split process where they're also considered by Nauru and health authorities as well. But as a matter of law, these asylum seekers uh, are certainly in Australia's care and it therefore owes them a range of duties. The Chief Medical Officer of the Australian Border Force, Dr John Braley, resigned in September. Do we know why? John Braley has still yet to explain why he resigned two years into a five-year appointment. But Nick Martin believes he's been able to shed some light on the reasons for that decision. Mm-hmm. What Nick Martin has said is that Dr. Braley's decision-making was also questioned and was also undermined. And he saw that as a serious problem, and, and he thinks that Dr. Braley was put in a very compromised and challenging position. Now, un until Dr. Braley, um, or if and when Dr. Braley decides to speak about his decisions to leave the department. Perhaps we'll know a little bit more then. But at this stage, Nick Martin offers a very clear picture of what 
Dr. Braley's position was like in the department and how that role worked. There's a bit of a sense in Australia among the Australian media at the moment that the population is aware of the horrible conditions on Nauru and and on Manus Island, but uh, somewhat... um, inured to it. They turn a blind eye to it. They've heard it so many times that it doesn't doesn't impact anymore. Do, do you agree with that? And, and what do you think is the main thing people need to know about what is happening under their name in these centres? I'd like to get both of your perspectives on that. Yeah. I definitely agree with it. I think that some of the feedback we get from overseas from these stories is sometimes um, more overwhelming than what um, Australians kind of um, respond to. And I think it's just... Um, I think these medical conditions are really compelling, like the, the fact that there are um, people living in pain, people living with leaking anal fistulas and obstructing um, kidney stones and women waiting for terminations for, preg- for unwanted pregnancies um, and, and also women who do end up being pregnant um, being evacuated at the last minute for life-threatening pregnancy complications like preeclampsia. Like these are... Um, human beings and I do think Australians are a bit desensitised to it but um, you know hopefully these stories help yeah I I think there's almost a sort of collective compassion fatigue um, that has slowly weighed down and worn down the Australian population over the last five years I mean it used to be the case um, that uh, simply an, an allegation of sexual assault in a detention centre by would render an enormous political response from government and would make headlines for days. But now it just takes more and more to make people see what's happening and to, to make them take notice of it. And the Nauru Files was a great example of this as well, where you had, as Gina alluded to, a enormous international response to the publication of those incident those 2000 incident reports but a perhaps much more muted domestic response from quite broad parts of the community and from quite broad sections of the Australian media. And Gina, I know you're in quite regular contact with some of the refugees in the Manus Island Centre, which, you know, obviously it's a huge week for with it closing down. How does what we've just been discussing, the kind of desensitisation, play into their sense of hopelessness at their situation? I think my contact with the men on Manus... um, has really changed over the past year even um like they're just the sense of helplessness is is just you, you can't really even re- describe it and and not only that the sense of distrust and paranoia like i think that's something that's really grown particularly over the past few months um you know i was talking to one of my contacts this morning um and he was explaining how they're um, stockpiling water because they need to use it for um, showering and toilets now. Um, and he just, he just, there's a sense among many of them that it's a deliberate and malicious act by the Australian go- government rather than one of um, neglect and avoidance, I guess, which is how many Australians would say it. So, yeah, I would say that um, the sense of paranoia in particular has really um, grown. Paul and Gina, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. 
Thank you. Thanks, Lane. That was Paul Farrell and Gina Rushton talking about their big investigation into medical services on Nauru this week. You can read the full thing on BuzzFeed.com. There's a number of stories in the series. And also on the BuzzFeed News and BuzzFeed Ozpol Facebook pages, you can see a video by our very own podcast producer, Nick Ray. So I really recommend taking a look at that. I like big woman. I like big woman. I like big woman. Australian politics, Lane. I think we can all agree it's just so ridiculous. I know we say it every week. There's no way it could get more ridiculous, but it just proves us wrong week after week. It always does. (laughs) And I think, you know, if we saw what happens in Australian politics in a TV show, we would Mm. say, no, it's just too unbelievable. There's no way that that could be real. But every week it proves us wrong. So for a different take on the chaos of Mm. Australian politics... I thought I'd have a chat to one of Australia's best political satirists, Sean McAuliffe. Now, you'll know Sean as the creator and host of some of Australia's best comedy shows. The McAuliffe program is one of the standouts in Australian TV. But, of course, Sean is also responsible for the most accurate television program, current affairs and comedy included, about Australian politics, which is mad as hell. Uh, and and creating the most accurate depictions of political staff as I've ever seen. Here is uh, Darius Horsham, who is the spokesperson for Senator Matthias Cormann. Spokesman for the Finance Minister, Darius Horsham. Sean, you are being an economic girly man. <laughs> the government cannot be expected to regulate what employers do or don't do with your money. Mm-hmm. It's a free market, and the politicians shouldn't be interfering by winding red tape around our business owners, these, these job creators who are not for the old-fashioned notion that, that we should pay humans to do tasks that just could simply and easily be done by futuristic cyborgs. The second season of the XPM has just started back on the ABC and I was lucky enough to grab Sean for a quick chat over the phone about what it's like to be a political comedian during this heady time of citizenship, leaks, postal surveys, ongoing leadership spills and, you know, just general chaos. Now, obviously... The new season's about to come out and the question rolls around every time, but I've got to ask it once again. Sean, who is XPM based on? Is it Kevin Rudd? Is it John Howard? Is it maybe a hint of Julia Gillard? Well, it can be many now, can't it? I mean, it's a, certainly the first series was pretty much inspired, certainly inspired by Howard and, and, and to a lesser extent, Rudd. But just the sort of general sadness, perhaps, of having to... Um, you know, go down and buy the cornflakes um, when you've been used to running a country. Um, but then it changed a bit because I remember um, maybe we were two weeks out and of going to air, and Tony Abbott got rolled, and and he, uh, he, you know, he, he stayed on like Rudd did, but he at least Rudd was was foreign minister for a while. You know, Tony decided to go to the backbench, and that's I just something something I would never have considered that anyone would want to do. I'm sure maybe. A long time ago, we had people like, I don't know, maybe Billy Hughes did it, you know, somebody somebody might have done it like that back in, just before the war. But um, So Tony Abbott has, even though he's, he's not really the character, he's, he hasn't become Andrew Duckdale, I haven't taken too much of uh, Tony Abbott's personality, but certainly the career, uh, the idea that the career's not over just because you, you've been kicked out of office, that you might actually come back and become Prime Minister again, that's not a fanciful idea anymore for someone to have. So that's certainly part of the motivation that there's enough people 
Andrew Duggar perhaps the less enthused about it, but everybody around him thinks it's a good idea that he goes back and runs again. So, um, yes, what's happened is that his book's come out. He's, he's got some sort of raised level of positive recognition for his name. He's got a tap on the shoulder from the old party, and they've said, well, look, would you like to um, run for this pretty safe seat of Murray-Darling Down? So it's a by-election, so he's got a good chance of getting back in, and then he can reclaim what he thinks is his former glory. Yeah, and I mean, it's quite interesting timing as well, given the fact that Kevin Rudd is out spruiking his book this week, this week too, about, about his time in office. Yeah, what's his book called? I keep forgetting, because it's not a very memorable name. Is it? <laughs> it's called Not uh, for the Faint-Hearted. Not for the Faint-Hearted. Now, that's, yeah, it's a bit soft. Uh, Andrew Dugdale's book is called Snatched Victory, which I think has got, <laughs> got a few more edges to it. It just sounds a bit more interesting, doesn't it? Yeah, well, having read Kevin Rudd's book, it is over 600 pages, and that's only oh, from birth 1957 until election night 2007, so we haven't even got to the good bit yet. Oh, no. Well, you're assuming it is a good bit that we do get to. I mean, if, if he's honest, it would be quite interesting, but it seems to be the way now, isn't it? If you, if you bring out your, your memoirs, it's assumed it's going to be three parts, you know, so mm. you can have, um, have a hunk of time in between. I'm sure he's probably half-finished the second one, but I guess that won't come out until the paperback comes out, for example. Interesting to see how it sells, because I don't sell very well, those things. You know, if you sell 5,000, that's considered, you know, a top bestseller political mm. memoir. You know, you do quite well there. Yeah, I was just wondering if, if you knew something we didn't know. In, in, in season one, uh, your, your ex-PM wrote a book, and then in season two he's running again. Could this? Are you predicting Kevin Rudd's next steps back into politics? Well, I, I might be. I've proved quite inadvertently prescient because um, quite a bit of this book, quite a bit of this series, rather, is uh, concerns. Well, he's running in Murray Darling Downs, which you know I've just made up, but it's the Murray Darling area, Mm. and there's there's a quite an important plot point concerning the water supply, which when we wrote when I I wrote it and we shot it, of course, wasn't in the news at all. But now it just seems to be quite an important thing. So I may well be, I may may well be some sort of uh, oracle. I know we, we, we sort of anticipated a few things on Mad as Hell. We sort of, let, let's pretend, I think we said at the beginning of one series, that Tony Abbott's going to be rolled. You know, he's no longer going to be the Prime Minister. So we had this little um, sort of uh, countdown clock made, and we were just making it up. But in the process, in, in the course of the months that passed between us making this thing and just as we were going to go to air, it, it, it was, uh, you know, it actually happened. It was quite strange. I, I have no explanation for it. It certainly wasn't me reading the, you know, the auguries of the newspapers and sort of having some great political acumen at all. I've got none. But um, it, seemed, it seems as though if I decide that something is likely to happen, it will. So look out. Well, I have spoken to a number of staffers who's commented on the eerie accuracy of Mad as Hell uh, in, in understanding the behind-the-scenes workings of, of politics. Do you have any staffers that give you tips or is it just what you pick up in the newspapers? No, look, honestly, I, like I say, I'm not a, I'm not a particularly um, dedicated follower of politics or even newspapers until the show comes on. And then we swat up and we do our homework and everything. So at least we know what we're talking, we think we know what we're talking about. Um, and I don't get any tips from anybody and we don't even get any, any help really from um, ABC News. You know, sometimes... Um, you know, we'd like to think that might bring up and say, hey, but here's an interesting bit of footage that, um, you know, is from the B-roll and, you know, we're not using it in the news, but it's quite helpful. We don't get anything like that at all. Mm. Sometimes it's just 
my co-writer, Darren McCaffrey, uh, and I probably share a similar disdain and, and cynicism about what we're told in the newspapers, but we'll often sit down and go, well, what makes sense? What's likely to be this story? This doesn't quite make sense. And we read something and we, we can't work it out. It's either our own stupidity or the fact that, you know, at its heart, it's a lie. So um, that was interesting when Malcolm Roberts was going through his various explanations as to why he he said he was a Australian, he always felt he was an Australian citizen, even though he patently wasn't. He was at least three others. He was either Welsh, you know, British or Indian. Um, we thought, well, what, what, why is he saying it like this? And we got little time over there. Well, he's probably trying to fudge this bit of it. He probably knows he's in trouble. And we sort of, you know, just pursued that line of what we thought was reasonable, you know. And that turned out to be pretty much the case. So um, sometimes it is simply applying logic to something and going, well, that doesn't make any sense. So the the only other explanation is is the one that does make sense. And so we just push that line. Have you ever um, had any feedback on your uh, invented staffer characters? I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the Matthias Corman staffer and the Jackie Lambie staffer. Well, when I was, I was, in the, I was at the ANU about two years ago um, flogging a book that I'd written and uh, quite a few um, politi- political uh, uh, juniors were there um, and one of them was from uh, Mr. Corman, Senator Corman's office and uh, the advice was that I had been mispronouncing his name. <laughs> I'd, been saying, I'd been saying Matthias, I think, for about two years and he said, oh, look, you know, he, you know we, we, all, we all like watching it, but could you get his name right? So I did, I did that. That was, that was the feedback that I got. I'm assuming that he's okay with it because he did actually uh, quote us. Uh, he uh, was on Sky News, I believe. He was talking to David Spears one morning. On a, you know, he tends to do the weekend. He does the Sunday. And he did call Bill Shorten an economic girly man, and this was after we pretended that he'd said it. So, um, which was very nice of him, but I think what happened was he, he got a bit of blowback for that because there were a whole bunch of journalists who obviously hadn't watched our show and didn't know that he was actually <laughs> being a bit meta about the whole thing uh, and, and sort of attacked him for being sexist, which was probably a little unfair. Um, so uh, we, we, um, we ended up scratching our heads and thinking, well, how do we deal with that? He's actually quoted the show. And we were managed to do it, though. We managed to do it without appearing too indulgent, which was very nice. Reprimand him for actually doing it. Attack him. <laughs> Attack him for watching the show and liking it. You know, he weren't going to give him a free pass. I did get a call from, uh, um, he's now an ex-senator, but I did get a call from an ex-senator, uh, a then current senator, who felt that we had done uh, him uh, a disservice in, uh, with a passing reference we'd made to him. And in retrospect, he was probably right. We, we, we had probably uh, made an ad hominem sort of um, observation and hadn't really dealt with something he'd said or done, which made me think a bit that we do have to be a little more um, fair in terms of not taking cheap shots at people. I mean, obviously, if the cheap shot is really funny, we'll take it. But, uh, <laughs> we, should, we should probably shouldn't do too much of that. And uh, I won't say who it was. It was Bill Heffernan. <laughs> I was, was going to guess, was it Bill Heffernan? <laughs> it was Bill Heffernan. And he, look, it was really strange because he'd, he'd rung me up. He'd managed to somehow get my phone number. I didn't have the... I had the presence of mind to actually ask him how he got the number. I was just so flabbergasted that I was talking to him on Sunday, on Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. Uh, but he had run through quite a few times. He was obviously very keen to take me to task over this thing we'd said. And uh, he was proceeding to tell me all the good things. And I'm sure he's done many good things while in office. And he was telling me about many of them. It's not all of them. It was a rather long conversation. And 
never taught anything, you know. It's, uh, I'm not sure. He, not sure he was quite aware. I suspect probably he hadn't seen it, but someone might have told him what we'd said. I think that was probably more likely the case. And he thought it was perhaps like a panel show or um, like the project or something like that. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I didn't hear back from him after that. He did threaten to have a coffee with me when next he was in town, which you know I, I certainly took as a veiled threat. But he he hadn't uh, he hadn't followed up on that. Um, hopefully when he reads this, he'll, he'll give me a call. He certainly got my number. So what do you think it is about Australian politics that produces such good, both, you know, mad as hell and, and also scripted comedy like the XPM? Is it is it the characters? Is it the sheer kind of ridiculous nature of our churning PM cycle over the last 10 years? What do you think makes it make such good comedy? Yeah, look, I think it's probably easier to, to make the XPM out of it than it is to make House of Cards out of it. And the reason I say that is I think in the United States you've got the leader of the free world with this, mind you, I don't know how you go making House of Cards these days with um, the current president in office, but there is something enormously important about the job that you can make light of. So the satire is, is that shape. Whereas over here, I always get a feeling that what we're doing in politics is so you know, it's so lightweight anyway that the only thing you can do to get some laughs out of it is to pretend it's really, really important, which is kind of what we do on Mad as Hell, and I guess what we're doing in XPM as well is the same approach, is that you're making something enormously important out of something that essentially is inept and a bit, a, a bit daggy, the whole thing. You know, it's like a burlesque or a parody of politics rather than actual politics. The very fact that, you know, a document that was hammered out in 1889 and passed in 1990, 19, sorry, 1901 that ends up biting a whole bunch of uh, dual citizens on the ass uh, is pretty funny. The fact that no one seemed to to say you are to blame for every time I see Barnaby Joyce I sing the Chaganooga Choo Choo in my head. <laughs> anyway, the uh, the man who wants to be the new endorsed candidate for New England is Barnaby Joyce. Is that the Chaganooga Choo Choo? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well he's gone, he's gone on to bigger and better things of course. We don't, we don't need to sing that song anymore because there's, <laughs> he gives us so many other references, you know. He, he's, he's amazing. He can barely string together a sentence. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to bag the guy for being inarticulate, but 
thing that a politician needs to be able to master is communicate his or her enthusiasm for a particular policy. And he can barely get a sentence out. He can't read. It's, it's very strange. He might be the loveliest guy in the world. I hear that he is a, a nice fella. But I think you've got to be more than that. It's a classic accountant. Can't read. Can't communicate. <laughs> Well, yeah, Sean, yeah, thanks so much for having a chat right. with us. That's all right. I uh, really right. just wanted to wrap up. If you want to chuck your Oracle uh, hat on one more time, what do you what do you think of Barnaby's future? Maybe you could take the show on the road to Tamworth for the by election. Sure. Well, I, th- I think. Look, I think uh, I rather suspect that there'll be a few that will go, and it may well be Barnaby who um, has to go. But I, I think he, they can fix it up pretty easily. Is so they just get somebody to sit in, and he, you know, he renounces his citizenship, and then he can run again. So it's just yet yet another calamitous waste of money to achieve the very thing that they're already doing. So that'll be interesting. Wow. Sean McAuliffe, what an Australian hero. Now, the second season of the XPM is out now. It's on iTunes, but if you're one of those old-fashioned people that uh, watch things on TV, it's on Thursday nights at 8.32pm, the ABC website says. Very specific. Also worth noting that this season of the XPM is the last screen credit of John Clark, one of the greatest political comedians Australia has ever seen. Uh, he's in the show playing the XPM's agent responsible for a lot of the kind of political dark arts. Uh, think a uh, less sweary version of Malcolm Tucker from The Thick of It. Uh, Lane, that's about all we have time for on this week's show. But before I go, mm-hmm. I want to say a big happy Halloween birthday to our producer, Nicholas Ray. It was his birthday this week. Okay, all right. Well, that's all we got time for this week. I want to say a big thank you to to our birthday boy, Nick Ray, uh, to Gina and Paul for coming on and having a chat with us. Um, please check out their huge investigation. Uh, it's all available online and on our social accounts as well. Uh, also, a big thank you to Josh Taylor, Nicola Harvey, Richard James, Peter Holmes, and the whole pod team. A big thank you to Rode Microphones for supporting the podcast. You can go to buzzfeed.com slash on or subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcasting app and leave a rating and review. We'll be back <laughs> next week with another episode. Um, and like, who knows, maybe another resignation from the government. I'm at Alice Workman on Twitter. She's at Lane Sainty. And Alice, just before we go, I've got to ask. I feel like it's a, it's a good week to ask. Is it on? Lane, it is on for one and old. Let me run through what we've got coming up in the next couple of weeks. we got the postal survey results on November 15. On yep. my birthday, we have the Northcote election in Victoria on November Ooh. 18. We've got what the Queensland treat. state election on November 25. We've got the yep. New England by-election on December 2. There has never been a more exciting time for anyone who loves a vote and loves to eat a good old democracy sausage sizzle. But in terms of federal politics, the Abbott backers have jumped all over this citizenship saga, scandal, whatever we're calling it now, saying that we need strong leadership, knowing full well that any kind of audit could see the fall of the government and potentially Malcolm Turnbull. Kevin Andrews has been the one fronting the media. If I was the Prime Minister, I would be ordering, uh, requesting uh, the AEC, for example, to immediately undertake an examination of every MP and senator and to report as soon as possible back to the government. If we don't do that, this is just going to continue to fester along and cause problems politically. But as a matter of principle, if we want to stop the further erosion of confidence in probably our most significant institution, namely the parliament, then we have to address the issue. He also told Sky that he is not going to engage in leadership talk now. Now, Lane. He's not going to do it now. Now, but, uh, what about tomorrow? What about tomorrow? We got. What about the day after that? We got a. We got a few weeks before um, the House of Reps is back. We've got a Senate week in yeah. two weeks, but then we, House of Reps is until the end of the month. 
we got a whole lot of time mm-hmm. for the numbers to be done. I mean, the first unsuccessful spill against Tony Abbott was held in the first week back of the year. So we've got the new sitting calendar. We know they're coming back in February. I mean, there's a lot of time between now and February to get some numbers done, Lane. Yeah. And with all those different elections, there's a lot of different things to get unhappy about. It's just so great. There is indeed. Isn't it so great? <laughs> is it? I was recalling a few months ago we were making jokes about how you – who would have thought that um, Trump's press secretary would be a more unstable job than Australian Prime Minister? But, I mean, who knows? <laughs> who knows? They've, they've held we under the press secretary retake, for a while now. <laughs> we could take right back over. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.